Hello, my name is Emily Lamb, and welcome to episode eight, the voting rights episode of Sheep Thrills. Uh, so today on this episode, uh, I'm going to talk with one of my friends, Maria, about HR1, which is the For the People Act. I'm going to talk about uh, the DC statehood hearings, and then I'm also going to reflect on kind of all of the violence that's happened over the past week and kind of what that means for the future of our politics. All right, so this first segment that I want to talk about today is just talking a lot about voting rights on the episode today. Um, So first, we're going to have a conversation about HR1, and I have a very exciting guest here with me today. Um, So Maria, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Of course. First off, thanks so much for having me, Emily. It's an honor to be here and talk to you about HR1. So my name is Maria Lanacosta. I am a first year here at GW, based in Fredericksburg, Virginia. My pronouns are she, her. I'm currently the Progressive Caucus Chair for GW College Democrats. I'm also very active in their campaigns, activism, and foreign policy committees. I'm also in the leadership team for Unpack at GW. And Unpack is an organization made by young people for young people. And what this organization advocates for is the passage of HR1 specifically. That is, it was formed with that intention and that is our pretty much our sole focus. And so what I'm doing with this organization on campus, I'm organizing alongside folks from Sunrise GW, who are also involved in the leadership team. Um, and we're trying to recruit students on campus to join us in our advocacy for HR1. Amazing. All right. So could you talk a little bit for those uninitiated? um, Would you mind just kind of briefly explaining what HR1 is and why it's important, kind of what's important to understand about HR1? Of course. So I think if there's one thing that the past four or so years have made clear is that this democracy needs a lot of fixing. Um, And we can't really do that with band-aid reforms we can't really do that with any short-term quote-unquote changes what we need is structural change we really need to take initiative and safeguard our democracy to make sure it doesn't crumble apart in the future and i think that's something that people from all across the political spectrum regardless of what side of the aisle you're on you can agree that there's something wrong with our government today and that it needs a lot of fixing. And that's what the HR, that's what HR1, also known as the For the People Act, would do. It would make sure that our government, which is formed by the people, actually works for the people and is actually formed by the people. And so this act would be probably the most transformative thing for American government and politics since the 1964 Voting Rights Act. Like I cannot, even from an unaffiliated point of view, this is undeniably transformative. It would be undeniably historic. I cannot underscore the importance of this bill. Um, And so among the things that this bill would do, it would make a hell of a lot easier to vote. It would address a lot of challenges voters face in casting their ballots while also protecting the security and integrity of our country's elections. It would also end the dominance of big money in politics and dark money, which is something that, again, everyone, regardless of what side of the aisle you're on, is very concerned about. It also 
work to restore ethics and accountability in government. It would actually ensure that public officials work in the interests of their constituents. It would overhaul the Office of Government Ethics and actually make sure that it has the power to enforce laws and ethics regulations. Um, and really, it would help pass future long overdue structural reforms as well. So this is not just something that would fix the present. It's something that could make the future a lot easier. It's something that could eliminate a lot of gridlock. And it's really something that is just inherently necessary. And so the For the People Act was passed by the House a few weeks ago, and it's now currently in the Senate. And it'll probably come to a vote anywhere between the next few weeks to the next couple of months. We don't really know how much longer we have until the date for the final vote is set. But um, really, this is kind of now or never when it comes to government reform that's actually meaningful. Yeah, I think I, I mean, that's an amazing overview. There's definitely like a lot in there. A lot yeah. to unpack with that. Wow, look at that. <laughs> um, I think uh, the the great thing is talking about like ethics and like accountability to elected officials, which is stuff definitely something that is sorely needed these days of you have so many elected officials who are just absolutely not responsive to their constituents, mm -hmm. clearly, clearly care more about themselves and getting ahead than, you know, being good government officials. So I think that that's like, uh, that's something that I didn't know was in that bill. So I think that's really great um, that that's included. And we can hope that all of that stays in through the Senate negotiations. Um, so you talked a little bit about your experience with Unpack, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about like what your experiences have been advocating for HR1. Um, and then in general, if you could just talk a little bit more about like different grassroots movements that have been working to get HR1 passed. Of course. So my involvement with Unpack is fairly recent. Like this is a very new organization. It was formed this month um, after the For the People Act passed the House because it specifically responds to the need to advocate for it in the Senate, um, seeing as getting the votes for it is going to be, a, a, quite frankly, an, an uphill climb, especially while the filibuster is still in place. Um, and especially when you have Democrats that are really hesitant on reforming the filibuster at all. For example, Joe Manchin, notably Kirsten Cinema. Um, so it was formed in response to that need. And so again, my involvement with it is very new, but I've really been passionate about voting rights and HR1 for a pretty long time. Back last year, um, I was the get out the vote coordinator for uh, the YMCA's Youth Voter Challenge, which was nationwide. Um, and as part of that, we also advocated for voting rights and increased accessibility for young people to vote. We were advocating for things like letting people pre-register to vote at 16. We were advocating for things like automatic voter registration. Um, and we were advocating for just general uniformity in voting regulations across the country because it varies very, very differently depending on the state that you're in. So I've had a fair amount of experience dealing with like voting in the past. So as soon as I heard 
that unpack was becoming a thing. And as soon as my good friend, Victoria Freire, who's from Sunrise GW and who's leading the unpack effort at GW as well, as soon as she reached out to me um, to sort of tell me about unpack, I was immediately on board um, because I knew that there were a lot of grassroots movements that were starting to form to get HR1 passed through the Senate. But I didn't know that there was going to be one forming at GW or at least a chapter of it forming at GW. So I was really happy to hear that. And as soon as I heard about it, I jumped on and here I am. That's amazing. And I think like, as you said earlier on, like this is such an important time to be talking about these issues, especially like right on the heels of 2020, where like there wasn't that much like like voter fraud, but we could see mm -hmm. all of these holes in our voting systems and like all of the insecurity that that caused. So I think that it's and, you know, of course, at GW, there's these grassroots movements sprouting up all over the place. So I'm 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 definitely really excited to see like where all this goes on GW's campus. So uh, the next thing I want to talk about, which is, you know, I'm sure it's something I talk about a lot. It's just like the nonsense arguments against popular policy. But what are the main arguments that are being presented uh, for and against HR1? Mostly against because the four are pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, so when you really think about it, um, a lot of the arguments that particularly Republicans are making against HR1 is they're pretty much arguments against making it easier for people to vote. That's been their main focus when it comes to attacking HR1 is um, attacking the provisions that would expand uh, access to voting. They're also attacking provisions that would help abolish the filibuster or significantly weaken it. That's pretty much, they've been really aggressive in attacking us on that front. But when it boils down to it on a human level, from the perspective of a concerned citizen, no matter who you supported in 2020 or before, no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, it shouldn't be controversial that this democracy needs to be equitable and just for everyone and that everyone should have equitable access. So when it really comes to it, there is no legitimate argument against HR1 because it disrespects the humanity of millions of people in this country whose path to vote is very difficult or even non-existent. And so this is why we need to pass HR1 is an extremely popular policy, uh, as you stated just a few minutes ago. And really there's no lo real logical argument that goes against HR1. And I say that not as someone who's advocating for the bill. I don't say that as someone who is very notably left of center. I don't say that as a Democrat. I say it as a human being who wants other people to be participating in the government that makes rules for us. And because I want this government to actually represent us, which is something that I think everyone can agree with. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I think that it's the, you know, it's the same arguments that we saw with the COVID relief package. Mm -hmm. like this extremely popular policy that like politicians were against because they had like artificial concerns about the deficit. Like what what was their like actual concern? Like they were never able to, to like verbalize like a true argument against it other than ones that were really like full of hot air or just were generally, you know just for perpetuating greater inequalities in our country. Um, 
which, you know, hopefully, you know, all of this legislation that we're passing in this administration will help us kind of move away from that. But um, so now kind of talking kind of on a broader scale, um, just talking about like why voter suppression and voter disenfranchisement is such an important topic. And, you know, we've seen, you know, all of the legislation coming out of Georgia and I think out of Texas that have just been like slowly, slowly chipping away at um, people's voting rights. So I was just wondering if you could talk about kind of in, in kind of broader detail why discussing and why working against voter suppression and voters enfranchisement is such an important topic. Of course. So I think depriving people of their right to vote, whatever the reason it is, whether it's something as arbitrary as they don't have a valid driver's license that they could present a as proof of ID, or whether they're um, formerly convicted felons that happen to not live in a state that allows them to vote after re-entering a society after being in prison. Um, I think depriving people of their right to vote is just antithetical to the foundation of our country. We were founded as a government by the people for the people. And if a government is not fully formed by all of its citizens, then they can't truly serve all of its citizens. We're expected to voice our concerns at the ballot box as our civic duty to our fellow people, but it's really impossible to do so when not everyone can exercise that right in the first place, which is why it's so important to fight voter suppression because strict voter ID laws in states like Georgia, for example, they indirectly target minorities. And that ends up having a huge effect and, and unjustly suppresses the right to vote of hundreds of thousands, if not millions. You have the lack of voting representation in Congress for DC and US territories as an, another example of this really gross injustice on a much larger level than just casting something at the ballot, a vote at the ballot box. And that doesn't even cover how citizens living in the territories can't even vote for their own commander in chief. It doesn't cover, for example, the barriers that gig workers and hourly employees face in getting time off to go vote. They're forced to choose between earning money that they need to live or voting. And that's an unconscionable choice. And those are just a few of the methods of voter suppression that this that state governments um, and even the federal government to some extent inflicts on millions of Americans. And I think that's something that everyone should stand against because at least I firmly believe in the power of a participatory democracy. And it also must be a representative democracy. Those two are not mutually exclusive. And for our democracy to truly represent us, for our country to truly serve us, and for our elected officials to truly serve the people that elect them, that's why we need to fight voter suppression. It was extremely eloquent, extremely well put. Um, and yeah, I just completely like 100% love everything you said with that. Um, I, voting, I am, I'm a huge voting stan. It's like one, you know, it's, it's like something I talk about all the time. And like, it's, it's hard to be someone who advocates so much for getting out there and voting when you see who's actually able to access the ballot box 
and who isn't and like whose voices are truly being suppressed. Um, and I, I, I really, really hope this legislation gets passed and we can move towards a place when we can advocate for everyone to go out and vote without that like trepidation of, you know, trying to say, oh yeah, go out and vote. But if you can't just like stay in line, like all of that, all of that craziness um, of just hoping that everyone can have that same equal access to the voting booth that we have. You know, I personally had like in, you know, Northeast New Jersey, like just being able to go and never have to wait in a line and always having enough access to, to those resources versus places that are, you know, you know, not, not as affluent or not as white um, who don't have that same access. So I think that's a really, really, really great way to kind of succinctly sum up why this argument is so important. So now I would love if we could talk about next steps. So you mentioned that um, it's now in the Senate. Uh, they're, they're doing hearings on it. They're debating it. Um, so now that the Senate has the bill, what are the next steps? Um, and then what can individuals both at GW and kind of uh, around the country do to help move the bill along, help get involved and unpack any of that? Of course. So there's really a lot of different ways and there should be a lot of different ways because the only way that this is going to get passed is if we make noise about it in whatever way possible, whether you tweet about it or post about it on your Instagram story or talk about it to your friends, that's making noise. Whether you get involved in Unpack, which is fairly easy, um, or you get involved in another grassroots organization or you choose uh, a more behind the scenes role, anything that raises awareness about HR1 raises the likelihood of it being passed because eventually it's going to get to the ears of the people in the U.S. Senate. If you're looking for some of the most direct ways to do that and to advocate for this piece of legislation, I think one of the things that I would recommend the most is just contact your senator if you have one or urge or if you don't have a senator, you know, if you live in D.C. or if you live in a state where your senator already is co-sponsoring HR1 in the Senate, pressure senators that aren't already co-sponsoring HR1 in the Senate, whether they be Democrats, whether they be Republicans. Put public pressure on them because politicians need to respond to the will of the people. They need to respond to the will of the folks that put them in the seat that they currently occupy. They're there to hear you out, even if they don't do it all the time, which is a huge problem that would be at least partly solved by HR1. So contact your representative um, do it multiple times if you have to. Call their office, email their office, tweet at them, post them, at them, subtweet them, whatever you want to do. Anything that gets their attention, that is worthwhile. If you want to join Unpacked at GW, you can contact me. My Instagram is MariaLeon2468. You can DM me and I can connect you to Unpack here at GW. You can also go to unpack.org. You can sign our youth pledge to, um, to HR1, which automatically sends a, an email to your senator if you have one. Um, 
or your federal representative if you live in DC. Um, those are just a few of the ways you can get involved, but really the best way to advocate for it is to get people aware of it and to really emphasize and underscore the importance of this bill and the impact it would have. Yeah, that's fantastic. Great call to action. Um, I will link all of the links somewhere so people will be able to access them. Um, and so yes, listen to Maria, do the work, get out of here. I hope you guys were inspired by this interview. I definitely was. Maria, you're a queen. I'm so glad that you're able to come and um, chat with me today about this bill. And I can't wait to see all the work that Unpack does and that you do. Um, and hopefully we can get this done, get this legislation done. So uh, with that, Maria, I just really want to thank you for being here uh, with me today. And I will, you know, talk to you later. Talk to you later. It was an honor to be here. Thank you. On the same topic, kind of around voting rights, the next thing I want to talk about today is the D.C. statehood hearing that happened um, in Congress this past week. Um, and basically, it was the House Oversight Committee um, debating H.R. 51, uh, which is, you know, H.R. 51 for the 51st state, uh, basically arguing about whether they should admit D.C. as the 51st state. Um, and basically the hearing was, as I said, the House Oversight Committee, and they brought in a lot of different like community activists, different members of the government, of the D.C. government, um, and, you know, the opposition party uh, to debate whether or not they should approve this bill uh, to go forward into like the whole house. Uh, and I watched some of this um, kind of around my class schedule, and it was painful to watch like truly painful uh a lot of these people a lot of the opposing are i mean because as, as people have said uh there's there i can't really listen to one legitimate argument that says that dc should not be a state like even the like the contrary arguments are like oh we need to just like give dc back to maryland or like give dc back to virginia it still it still gives representation to the people of dc people who think that the the you know the district of columbia should not be a state or should not have any kind of federal representation there is very legitimate actual reason for that um and there's i haven't seen a single good argument around that and it's very clear uh, that those who were instructed to come in and debate on the side of not admitting DC as a state had the same issue in that they had no good arguments. Um, it, so watch, yeah, watching this hearing was like so frustrating and it was so hard to listen to. Um, but kind of around the issue of voting rights, you know, kind of the main topic for this episode, um, at least for this first half, is that... Um, you know, the residents of D.C. can't run for federal office. They um, they don't have federal representation, really. Uh, yeah, they have non-voting representation, which, which basically means that there's 700,000 plus people, predominantly of which are, you know, people of color, don't have equal representation in Congress. Um, and, you know, no taxation without representation is, you know, one of the founding principles of America. So that's a, a just a generally a really frustrating argument. And obviously, D.C. statehood is, is extremely important. And as I said, there are very few legitimate reasons why D.C. should not be a state. Um, and, you know, in arguing about why 
you know, D.C. not having federal representation isn't important. Um, The opposing arguers basically said that, you know, D.C. residents do have an impact on the federal debate because all these lawmakers are driving past, you know, all these D.C. residents' lawn signs and bumper stickers on their cars, which means that they're definitely contributing to the overall debate, which is ridiculous, like truly and honestly ridiculous. Um, Because, you know, as anyone in the campaign world will tell you, a lawn sign does not equal a vote. You know, lawn signs are great for getting the message out. They're great, especially in rural areas, for raising awareness of different issues or candidates. But when push comes to shove, lawn signs don't vote. And just because there's a million lawn signs out doesn't mean that your initiative is going to pass. you know, it's been proven that, like, lawn signs have very little impact on um, actually convincing you to vote for someone. It's just basically for name awareness. So the argument of, like, oh, well, you know, lawmakers are driving past people's lawn signs, which basically means that they're contributing to the national debate, which means that they shouldn't be given a voting seat in Congress, is ridiculous. And then the other argument, of course, is that it's like it's entirely a partisan debate. And the fact that, oh, well, you know, the only reason Democrats are pushing this through Congress is so they get two new senators and however many new um, Congress people. And OK, fine. Well, it's true that um, D.C. is a predominantly Democratic city, city and, you know, city state, hopefully. Um it doesn't mean that just because someone's a Democrat doesn't mean that they shouldn't have representation. And they're citizens of the United States. Like, you know, they deserve that representation. And my argument is that if D.C. was a predominantly Republican, if it was a predominant, if it was 70% white, you know, 70, 80, 80, 90% Republican, um, there would be a huge push to get it to be a state. And D.C. would have been a state years and years and years ago. And there is no question about it. And, you know, that comes down to a lot of things that I've talked about before in that the Democratic Party is not good at governing. And the Republican Party is really good at, you know, shaming the Democrats into compromises that they shouldn't compromise on. Um But there's just absolutely no universe in which a red D.C. would not have been a state 20, 30 years ago, right? This isn't, I mean, it's not a new argument around D.C. statehood. And, you know, again, like all the the people who are making these opposing arguments were like saying that we're racist for not letting D.C. become a state is like a ridiculous argument. It has nothing to do with race. It just has to do with wanting to disenfranchise Democrats. You know, and it it does. It's not our fault that most Democrat, you know, most of the Democrats in D.C. are black people. Like, it's just it's ridiculous. And if you can't like draw the line, like to draw the correlation between the two ideas, it it's just very frustrating, um, for the people of D.C. and for these lawmakers and these decision makers who kind of can't look at the issue through a critical lens. Whatever. I don't. I don't. I don't know what to tell them about that. I hope that they will see some clarity and be able to see through the partisanship just a little bit to give 700,000 people the representation that they deserve in Congress. And like, honestly, um, you know, there's just just because D.C. is a Democratic majority place doesn't mean that um, we should be like we should throw at, you know, there's no chance of um, 
it ever becoming red, right? There's no such thing as like a truly safe state, a truly safe municipality. Like there's just because, you know, it's historically been a blue place doesn't mean that it's not up for grabs. And the Republicans, I'll say it, they're good campaigners. I don't agree with their campaign strategies and I think they're broadly very manipulative, but whatever, if, if if, if DC becomes a state, why don't the Republicans just fight for it? Why don't they campaign? Why don't they try to, you know, take that place under control? Under their, it's just, if you're going to be so frustrated about something that you think is a Democratic given, don't take it for granted. You know, campaign, fight for it. Use the 51 state strategy um, and like actually try to get those votes. I don't know. That's just frustrating to me um, because it's 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 racist and it's lazy and it's just silly. So anyway, that's that's like a just a frustration on that argument. And then there's the other the other argument that comes up so much um, is talking about giving D.C. back to Maryland or Virginia. Which is is a silly argument. It's an argument that I understand when you are not from the area or you haven't lived in the area. And I'm a very recent transplant, so I'm not arguing that I'm some kind of like expert on DC culture or anything. I'm I'm really 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 not. But even though I've only been here for two months, I can tell that like DC ha- it has its own culture. It's its own place, and so it's not it's not as easy as saying. You know, it has its own government. It has its own societal structure. It has its own, you know, D.C. is its own unique place, much like, you know, New Jersey is its own unique place. Um, And so to argue like, oh, we just need to like give it back to another state after so many years of being independent is, again, it's ridiculous. So like a lot of people joke about, oh, well, we just need to, you know, combine North and South Dakota and then make D.C. a state and then we won't have to reprint all the flags. Which, like, objectively, yeah, is the correct solution. But at the same time, much like D.C. and Virginia, North Dakota and South Dakota have different cultures, have different societal structures, have different norms, have different ideas, have different cultures. So to just say, like, oh, well, you just need to put them together. You just need to make them one place. Like, that's just not... It just doesn't work like that. And it can't work like that. Um, So that's just another silly argument. 700,000 people deserve to have representation in Congress. Um, And I know this is just like a really brief overview. And of course, as things change with DC statehood, I will um, get back into it. And I will do like a, I might do like a longer episode down the line about DC statehood in general and bring some friend more friends on to chat about it um but anyway that was just a really brief overview you know while we were talking about voting rights and while we were talking about disenfranchisement uh, I just thought this was a really important topic to bring up so now I'm going to move on to my last topic of the day which is a little bit more serious um so anyway I just want to say wow what a week it has been, two weeks really. Um, And at least personally, it has seemed like this week has just been filled with like extremely frustrating, upsetting, angering news. Um, And, you know, based on the year we've just had, it seems like almost impossible to have a week that seems worse than others. Um, But I honestly think that we just experienced 
a, a, a really truly bad week. Um, and you know, over the past two weeks, we've been just inundated with stories of violence and fear. Um, and so I just wanted to take some time to talk about and decompress some of these events. Um, so this is just like a content warning right here uh, that I'm going to be talking about sexual assaults um, and I'm going to be talking about the, you know, the violent attacks in Boulder, Colorado and in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, so if you do not want to listen to these things, if you think that they are going to trigger you in some way, I would just recommend um, kind of skipping to the end of the episode because uh, I am pretty much going to talk about this for the rest of the episode. So giving some time for people to log off or skip. Um, the the first thing that happened this week, I think the beginning of the this like downturn was all of the news that came out about sexual assaults and about, you know, harassment against women. Um, that's like that was in the news. And the, you know, the statistic that came out that 97 percent of women have experienced some kind of sexual harassment, which plenty of people raised alarm about. And they're like, there's no way it's 97 percent. There's no way it's that high. Um, but when you look at what is actually included in that 97%, uh, you know, it includes catcalling. It includes being, you know, pressured to do something that you don't want to do. It includes, you know, all the way up to, you know, the more graphic or extreme things like rape um, or, you know, to like true sexual assault. Um, so I think that that was, for, for me at least, that was a really shocking statistic. And I think like, you know, the, the definition of what constitutes sexual harassment um, has especially in this statistic it's it's evolved quite a lot so it's very different than what you know you're taught in school or like in health classes is like explicitly sexual harassment or sexual assault um and i think that like that 97% statistic really makes you makes you think about like your own experiences and what you've experienced um and that's that's like pretty scary so that was just kind of the first thing that came out on top of a couple stories about, you know, murder, you know, the murders and sexual assault, graphic sexual assaults of women. Um, and, you know, then on top of all of these stories, on top of everything that's been happening um, over this week, they, um, the House voted to renew the Violence Against Women Act. So that act actually gets, it has to be renewed every couple of years. Um, and, like, they update it with some, like, additional provisions, um, whatnot. So I, I don't remember exactly how many years in between it is uh, that they have to renew it, um, but I think it's, like, every Congress they have to vote on it. Um, so the Violence Against Women Act just, it basically just entails a lot of, you know, some, it, it's, it's just legislation to protect women from sexual assault, um, you know, it clearly defines, um, you know, what sexual assault entails, it provides funding to different programs to help, you know, survivors of sexual assaults and, you know, domestic assault, domestic violence. And again, on top of all of these stories that have been coming out over the past week, um, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was like 170 Republicans voted against, you know, renewing the Violence Against Women Act. 170 Republicans voted after hearing all of these 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 explicit stories about how dangerous it is to be a woman in America and how dangerous it is to be a woman in the world we see these republicans uh you know broadly men just completely you know they have this legislative responsibility to protect their constituents which is going to be a running theme for the rest of this segment they have a legislative power they have a political power to protect their constituents, to protect the people in their communities, and they are not taking it. 
They are instead saying, actually, no, we have this opportunity to protect you and to provide resources that might actually help you, but we're actually not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're going to turn away from you. We're going to throw you to the wolves. It's just, it. I, I, I don't know how eloquent I'm going to be in this last section, because um, it's truly shameful, disgusting, horrifying um, that, that, that a lot of these actions have happened. Um, and... Oh, last week, uh, which was my spring break, I was actually actually at a conference, um, and we were talking a lot about um, violence against women and girls, and you know it was it was a lot of it was like an international perspective, um, and of course you know rates of violence um, are a lot higher in other places around the world, especially against girls, but you know what we learned from that conference was you know, like these various intersecting forms of discrimination that allow for women and girls to become the victims and the survivors of violence in so many different situations. Um, And, you know, a lot of that, especially this year, talking about those issues was talking about how the coronavirus has made things a lot worse for people. And um, again, it's, it's, it's hard for me to look at all of these politicians who both had the opportunity to help people recover from the coronavirus and had the opportunity to help women um, recover from experiencing violence, which, you know, there's a lot of statistics that have proven that the rates of violence against women have gone up considerably since the beginning of the coronavirus because of, you know, people being locked down with their abusers. Um, they're not able to get out. They're not able to get help. Get help. They're not able to get the resources that they need. Um, so, again, this is you know two pieces of legislation almost back to back in the House that Republicans have said no. We're actually not going to help you recover from the coronavirus. We're not going to help you you know get resources, and we're not going to help you um, kind of curb this violence that you're experiencing deeply frustrating and again a a legislative power a political it's and it's hard for me to talk specifically about politics with this because this is this shouldn't be a political issue this is the you know the lives and well-being and health of 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 real people of real real human beings real americans um so it's hard for me to talk about politics but at the same time you know Nobody wants there to be increased amounts of domestic violence against women and girls, all right? So you, they, they have this, this political incentive that it's good politics to help people, because it is, that's your job, your job is to help people. And it's also, you have the legislation right there, you have the policy right there that if you just grow a backbone, you'll actually be able to help real people. Um, so that's been something that's really scary, um, I think that it just continues to prove that people, politicians in this country really don't have a backbone and they really don't have any desire to help real people. And I I truly, truly hope that um, all of these people's constituents are looking at these decisions and saying, oh, okay, so you're not even going to vote on something like this. That's actually going to help me. It's actually going to help real people. Um, I understand that you have zero desire to help me or help the people around me. I am not going to continue to vote for you. Um, And I really, really, truly hope that people are paying attention to these issues and they're paying attention to the votes that these politicians are taking because 
the action, you know, I don't want to say the word, but the actions are deplorable by this, by this group of people. Um, and, you know, on top of all of this that was happening, all of this information about violence against women and, uh, you know, again, like how dangerous it is to, to be a woman in America today, all the people who've been coming out, coming again, coming forward with their stories about sexual assault. Uh, there was a shooting in Atlanta, uh, which I'm sure you have heard about, but, you know, it was a racially charged hate crime um, against the Asian American community. And many of the victims in the shooting were women as well. So it was, you know, specifically, despite the fact that, you know, the police will probably never say it, it was a crime against Asian women. And that's, yeah, I can't, I can't, I think that, I don't know. I don't know if I was, I'm able to properly um, speak on this issue and I don't even think I've ever, I've even like properly processed it because of the fact that, you know, shootings and mass shootings like this are, are just such a normal occurrence in America that I, you know, don't think I've processed one since probably Sandy Hook. Um, but, you know, just on top of, all of the information we were learning about violence against women and about sexual assaults against women, we had this story coming basically right on the heels. And, you know, the the police refusing to say that it was racially charged. And, you know, especially after the string of, you know, again, racially based hate crimes against the, you know, AAPI community around the country. So there was a couple attacks in New York. There was this attack in Atlanta. Um, the fact that there have been so many of these attacks basically in a row that the police are still unable to say that it was racial, you know, based on race or based on gender is completely insane. And, you know, on top of that, I think it was the chief of police who said that, you know, the killer had a really bad day, a really bad day that resulted in the deaths of, I think, like eight, eight people. And I, I don't, I don't, again, I don't know how to process that because I don't understand, like, why, like, how, how you can say that with a good conscience. Like, look at, you know, because look at, look at people in your, in your district who are dead and saying, oh, well, the, the killer had a really bad day. So, you know, we can't, we can't hold it against him like that. Like, yes, we can. And yes, we should. And it's just, you know with violence like there's so many intersections and there's you know the intersections of race and of gender and age and ethnicity and location and you know I just think that it's so important that we acknowledge all of these intersections and we actually work to you know create racially sensitive legislation that is actually going to help people. And we, we work really hard to get rid of the biases that allow for things like this to happen, right? There is a, and there, there has been for a long time, a, a rampant like anti-Asian sentiment in America. And, you know, that's only perpetuated by people calling it the, calling the coronavirus the China virus, or, you know, making jokes about, you know, people in China eating bats and, you know, there's there's this, like, distinct, like, culture around being racist towards Asian people. 
And that's been around for a long time. And, you know, the more we see people in the public eye doing it, the more normalized it becomes. And, you know, it's it's frustrating and it's hard to say, but, like, people in the, the public making jokes about the China virus, that's, that's normalizing anti-Asian sentiments. That's normalizing... Um, racism. It's normalizing bias. And when you continue to normalize, normalize, normalize all of that racism and all of that hatefulness, um, that, that's what leads to attacks like this. That's what says to this, this killer, this killer says, well, you know what? I'm racist and I don't like Asian people. And, you know, public leaders are also telling me that it's okay that I don't like Asian people. So my biases are so strong right now that I'm going to go out and I'm going to specifically target and murder Asian people. That's insane. That's insane. And again, I said this, like, our, our public officials have a responsibility to protect us. That is their job. That is their literal occupation, is to go out and create legislation and be the public voices that are helping us. They're, they're representing us. And we have public officials who refuse to um, condemn violence, who refuse to condemn these biases. And they're, they, they are maybe not directly responsible, but they are certainly, certainly part of the problem that is, you know, they're, they're, part, they're part of the problem that led to these attacks that is resulting in these attacks that are probably not going to go away anytime soon because you know this hatefulness is it, it it's so deeply ingrained in our country and it's been again it's been normalized by politicians it's been normalized by members of the public and that needs to go away and I don't really know how to make it go away um other than just to re- reiterating that our public officials have a responsibility to protect us. And if they're not going to protect us, we need to vote them out. We need to get rid of them. They, they, should, not, they should not be part of our discourse anymore. Um, and if they're going to continue to perpetrate or perpetuate, you know, racist, bigoted sentiments, then they should not be there anymore. Because we need to be actively working as a community to get rid of those sentiments. And we can't be, we can't continue to amplify and uplift voices that are not working towards eliminating bias. You know, we need to be moving towards an anti-racist society in general. And it's deeply frustrating how far we are from that place um, because of, you know, ignorance and bigotry and you know, I, I, again, I, I don't, I don't, I know that I'm not being particularly eloquent, um, in this segment because it's, it's just something that's so deeply frustrating to me because I do, I do believe that our government can be effective and it, it can be, and it has the true, like, it has the bones to be so effective and it's just not going to be able to get there because of people who are selfish and prejudiced and bigoted and because they have these talents so deep in um our culture and in our discourse 
we're never going to be able to throw them off. And I don't want to say never, but I think that it's it's a significant challenge to be able to actually get, you know, get these people out of our public discourse, out of sight, out of mind, you know, I, I don't know. And then, you know, on top of the shooting in Atlanta, uh, there was a shooting in Boulder, Colorado this past weekend. And a shooter used, you know, an AR-15 and killed 10 people in a grocery store. And, you know, we have elected officials like one Ted Cruz, you know, a frequent uh, person I bring up in the show, um, who, you know, is in a hearing saying, you know, after every mass shooting, the Democrats used it as, as ammunition to try to get rid of our, of our Second Amendment rights. After every mass shooting... That's what he said after that. After every mass shooting, the, the Democrats try to take away our first, Second Amendment rights. If, if you're starting a, a sentence with after every mass shooting, I think that you maybe need to look yourself in the mirror. Look yourself in the mirror and think about what you're saying, okay? If you're saying after every mass shooting something happens, if there's something, there's so many mass shootings that there, a pattern is emerging, then I think that, you know, maybe you're on the wrong side. Maybe you're on the wrong side of seeing 10 people die in one shooting. You know, and, and however many there was, there was, I, I read something that there was a, there was a different shooting, like every single day this past week, every single day this past week. But, you know, just because only one person died or someone was injured, they didn't get as much attention. Think about the body count from guns in this country. And look at Ted Cruz in the face and think that he is, he, is, he is truly looking out for our best interests. He is truly looking to protect our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Because he is not. He is looking to protect himself. He's looking to protect his money. He's looking to make a name for himself. He is not looking to truly protect the people. And that is sick. That is truly and honestly sick. And the same thing with uh, Lauren Boebert, who is a congresswoman. She's from Colorado. And she just did an interview a couple weeks ago where her background was her big wall of automatic weapons. All right? And then this shooting happens and she says, oh, well, you know, my heart goes out thoughts and prayers to the people who are affected by this shooting. When she wasn't part of it, again, it's the normalization of these weapons and of these guns and of the fact that she is more interested in protecting the gun lobby and in protecting herself and in trying to make herself this big character than she is about protecting her constituents, the people of her own state. She doesn't care at all. She doesn't care at all about them. And it's, again, it makes me sick to my stomach that we can't do something about it and we can't remove these people from the discourse Um, because they are, they are, they are, polluting they're polluting this country and they're polluting the discourse and they are making this world more dangerous to live in and it's it's you know i just i i i don't have like a neat way to wrap this up other than saying that you know at this time we're seeing all of this all of this violence all of this hatred in our country and the republicans are still focusing on dr seuss more than the actual issues affecting, and in some cases, killing their constituents. So, I mean, you know, there's no, like, big Republican bigwigs who are listening to this podcast. But, you know, to all the Republicans who are, you know, posting videos of themselves reading Dr. Seuss books, you aren't owning the libs. 
You aren't owning the libs. You actually look like an idiot. Um, and many of you are. So congratulations. I'm really proud of you guys for being able to have, you know, the high, um, you know, reading literacy to be able to read a children's book. So congratulations. Good for you. Uh, now, if you wouldn't mind, grow a spine, get to work and protect your constituents because I'm sick of it. And I am sick of being so normalized, you know, having all of this violence be so normalized that I don't even look twice at the news when I see that there's been another shooting. I want to, I want to, I want to feel it. You know, I want, I want, I want to not have that be so normal for me that I don't, I don't even react to it anymore because it's sick. I'm 19 years old and I'm not even affected by this level of violence anymore because it's so common in our society. I'm, I just am so, so truly and honestly sick of it. Um, deeply frustrated, deeply angry, uh, kind of where, where we are right now. And I can only hope that things improve. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know why, but I, I can only hope that things kind of get somewhat better. So that was a lot and a lot to decompress. Um, so I'm going to leave you guys with my two funny news stories of the week. I think that we all need it. We all need a little bit of lightness in our lives. Um, two two stories that aren't necessarily political, but are really funny and random. And I just feel feel the need feel the need to share them to let everybody go with a laugh instead of hopefully you know crying at the end of this episode. So first of all. A big, giant boat got stuck in the Suez Canal. I don't know how this happened, but I really hope that you guys all look it up and Google it. Because, you know, the Suez Canal is, like, pretty small. And somehow this boat went sideways in the canal. And is I think it's still stuck there as of when I'm recording this. And it's just a very funny picture of this poor boat trying desperately to like k-turn out of the canal so that it can keep going and like all these boats that are stuck up behind it um it's it's very funny to me that there's you know boats pass through this canal every single day every single day of the year um every hour of the day and somehow this giant boat just made a big old big old mistake and now they're stuck and I, I truly, I truly feel bad for them. And I hope, I hope that they make it out of the, out of the canal. I'm sure that they will. But anyway, looking at those pictures, hopefully will bring you a laugh because it's this giant boat trying desperately to, you know, those, those, those giant boats, they do not move fast. They do not move fast. So them trying to like slowly ease themselves out is, is just, it's, it's very funny. It's very funny. Okay. And my other news story is that a man found this is mm, this made me actually kind of vomit in my mouth when I read it, and it's just the funniest thing in the world to me. That a man found shrimp tails in his cinnamon toast crunch. He opened up his box of cinnamon toast crunch, and there were shrimp tails in it. What? How did that happen? And I cannot wait for the rest of the story to unfold because I'm sure that they're you know they're doing this like entire audit of the factory that these um boxes of cereal are made. But I just imagine opening up your cinnamon toast crunch and you pour some into a bowl and there's shrimp tails in there. How gross is that? I can't even imagine. Anyway, Google both of these stories. I'm sure they'll come up. Very funny, very crazy, crazy stories um, this week. 
But I hope that that gave you a little bit of a laugh after uh, a slightly depressing last half hour of this show. But anyway, my name is Emily Lamb. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate all of your support. And I will talk to you guys next week. All right. Have a good one. Bye.